1: again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, we didn't talk about Oscars betting at all this year prior to the ceremony, and it's just as well because without having seen any of the nominated movies, I probably would have told the listeners that Chadwick Boseman was a lock to win a posthumous Best Actor award. He was as high as a minus 3,300 favorite, Everyone assumed he was going to win, including the producers of the awards telecast, who ended the show with Best Actor instead of Best Picture, so they could go out on the emotional feel-good moment. But as everyone surely knows, Anthony Hopkins won, and he wasn't even there to accept the award. John, who felt more stupid on Monday morning, Oscars telecast director Steven Sutterberg or minus 3,300 Bozeman betters?
2: Uh, no, I'm gonna have to go with Oscar voters who only chose Hopkins because, while they knew Bozeman would win and they were fine with it, they figured they got a free pick of Hopkins because this was no, not a real competition anyway, and mm-hmm. they like him and they probably like the role. Yeah, it's interesting because never before in U.S. history have any people not voted for a certain winner for the same reason only to wake up stunned one morning. That could never happen, Eric. So that's uh, <laughs> the first time. So now, with the major stipulation that I know nothing about movies, um, I didn't really have a problem with the selection of Bozeman because I, I thought his work and whatever movie he was in was supposedly spectacular. And uh, that's what I hear. So two worthy choices and one tragically died way too soon. And this is one final bit of minor solace for a still grieving family. I'm good with that. Uh, and by the way, if I'm Hopkins, I'm wondering if the Academy knows something about my health that I don't.
1: Oh, that's an interesting angle that uh, <laughs> trying to sneak one last one in there just in case. Um, yeah. I, I saw neither movie, uh, can't comment on either performance did hear various people saying that Hopkins actually was their favorite performance of the year, but that, you know, that everyone still expected Chadwick Boseman to, to win. Um, I just look at those numbers. There's almost never a minus 3,300 bet in anything that's worth it to me. Um, I could have maybe seen myself dropping something like that into a parlay. And boy, would that have been painful if you hit every leg of a parlay and then the (laughs) Anthony Hopkins win spoils it for you. But uh, but I I see Soderbergh as taking the biggest gamble, especially given the modest limits on Oscars bets. Uh, His reputation was on the line to some extent. And uh, look, I barely watched the Oscars this year. I watched like the first 10 minutes and then I checked in for a couple of minutes here and there. It seems every creative decision Soderbergh and his team made was bad. Um, But then to make that gamble at the end, I guess it proves for those with Oscars betting integrity concerns that they really do keep those envelopes secure. Because we can say with certainty that the director of the show didn't know whose name was in there. If there's a positive to take out of this for Oscars bettors, it's that.
2: I, I didn't know that they had switched the ending. I mean, I've watched the Oscars many times over the years, and I know that Best Picture is always the last one. Okay. And to to juggle that, that that's that's I think that's actually offensive. I mean, I don't know if anybody in the family was offended, but I would feel that way. That like you know, hey, guess what? We're gonna we're gonna uh, piggyback on your grief to get <laughs> a, a nice going out moment because that'll that'll make for a uh, a clever production. That's 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 pretty offensive.
1: Yeah, I guess in a in a way you could say it's a little bit uh, karmic if you do uh yeah. view that that decision as offensive, but uh one thing is for sure, the Oscars broadcast ended on an extreme anticlimax. Oof. Uh, well, our podcast will not have any anticlimaxes. I assure you of that. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 140 of Gamble On. You are part of an audience that is almost certainly larger than that of the 2021 Academy Awards telecast. If you missed any of our previous 139 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Just click subscribe and you'll never miss another episode.
2: And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by TVG's Mike Joyce. He's going to help us preview Saturday's Kentucky Derby. We'll ask Mike whether essential quality of the favorite should be as big a favorite as he is, Uh, how much starting position really matters, Uh, whether fixed odds wagering is the future of American horse race betting. But first, it's been a, once again, I would say typically busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling.
1: There is no question whatsoever what the top story of the week in the gambling industry is, Florida sports betting. On Friday morning, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a new gaming compact between the state and the Seminole tribe, and the legislature could approve it during a special session in May. And just like that, Florida stunningly joins New York among the big four states getting ready to welcome statewide mobile sports betting. Except... Maybe not. Uh, Two time on guest and highly respected gaming law attorney Daniel Wallach was all over the airwaves and social media the last few days, insisting that this potential monopoly approach for the Seminoles won't fly because the framework falls under the purview of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which allows gaming only on tribal land, which literally means the betting has to take place on tribal land, not through servers located on that tribal land. So mobile betting is out. And only brick and mortar betting at Seminole properties is permitted. Wallach is confident that the Secretary of the Interior will reject the compact, and that if she doesn 't, a competitor who wants to offer sports betting in Florida will file suit in federal court and Wallach expects this to get hung up in the legal system for at least a year or two. Wallach tweeted, quote, "This compact will flunk federal court scrutiny, not even a close call john you 're not a gaming lawyer, but you've spent plenty of time talking to gaming lawyers. Is Wallach's certainty well placed here in your view? And if so, if this is getting rejected or challenged, any guess how this plays out and whether Florida is any closer now to mobile betting than it was a few weeks ago?
2: Well, I would tweak that a little bit. Wallach believes that because the new Secretary of the Interior is the first Native American to ever hold a position, Seminoles might have a little bit more of a home game there than you would expect. Right. But my money on that is no action, meaning in 45 days, they, uh, the Secretary of the Interior either approves or rejects or does nothing to the compact. And uh, that's where I'm going with no action. That, hmm. that means it's sort of presumptively accepted, but um, – but not literally. And that will happen sometime this summer. And that way, the new secretary is not so overtly picking sides. And, and really, why bother when you just walked in the door? Uh, then someone's going to file suit. Uh, and then the home game becomes a Chicago Stadium circa early 90s uh, road game versus the Chicago Bulls. And <laughs> believe me, I was there. I trust me. It's brutal. Um, there's a decent argument to make that it's not fair for federal law being seemingly stuck in the dark ages when it comes to the parameters of federal compacts and, and Indian gaming, but that's the way it is. And there's an obvious remedy though. It won't happen. Congress could change the rules of engagement, but uh, so if there's any drama to be had, I think it's whether a lower court sides of the Seminoles before it goes to the Supreme court because a conservative court isn't going to notice all the precedents in plain language and decide, man, I'm not really feeling it. Let's change the rules ourselves. That's not going to happen. So I'm not bullish on Florida gaining ground in the short term, which I would say is in the next year.
1: Yeah. So so you think that there is the potential here that this could go all the way to the Supreme Court, that that's uh, that's. Yeah. It, yeah in, and in while, while it's helped yeah. convince
2: me of that, that there's yeah. uh, there's sort of constitutional issues at play here that uh, that, that might attract them on this. So uh, uh, and while that will that's the part that really takes a while, I, mean, I think this can right. get to uh, a federal judge in. I think by the end of summer. Um, and then a ruling, you know, maybe comes only a month or two after that, perhaps. Uh, but then if they appeal to Supreme Court, that's going to take months and months. And if they take the case, you know, we know from the New Jersey sports betting case that, I mean, that can be uh, six months till an or, till oral argument and then six months till a ruling, basically. So um, that would tie this thing up for, for quite a while, which is why I think uh, Florida is not there yet.
1: Yeah. So, as many have pointed out, the compact that they agreed to is highly favorable to the Seminoles. Uh, our, our friend Brett Smiley said this week that the Seminoles have the state by the balls. Uh, that, that seems to be the case here, with the Seminoles able to contract with paramutuals and then keep 40% of the gross revenue from those parimutual sports betting operations. But, you know, it, it's all moot if indeed it's determined that only bets placed on tribal land are allowed, you know, nothing online and nothing at these paramutuals. Uh And, and Wallach isn't the only one pointing out the legal yes. ro- roadblocks. Uh, Jill Dorson for Sports Handle found two other insiders who agree with Wallach on, mm. on IGRA. Um, and I thought Jill summed up the situation with a good line. She wrote, the most cynical have called the pact a red herring, while those who are optimistic see it as a good opener to the complex issue of legalizing sports betting in Florida. So that, that feels like the key question here. If if we all agree that this compact isn't just becoming reality and bringing sports betting to Florida in the form spelled out, uh, then the question is whether this is a total waste of time and Florida is back to square one or this is a launching point that advances the ball And we can realistically expect a better, less monopolistic deal to get worked out and sports betting to arrive in Florida in the next year or two. Uh, I have no idea what the answer is. I just think Jill did a good job there in a single sentence summarizing the key question
2: yeah i will say that the previous efforts in florida were even worse because they didn't include the seminoles and i remember reading an article a couple of months ago and it's like okay so what do the seminoles say <laughs> if they if they say no i wouldn't use brett's term exactly but um if they're not uh, uh in alignment on it it's it's you're just completely wasting your time so you know again they they don't quite have as much power as they'd like because of igra but um they do have a lot of power definitely in florida uh not only i mean not only from lobbyists which is there but also uh in the compact so um at least uh, you're incl- you have to include the Seminoles at any – they're never going to get anywhere without mm-hmm. the Seminoles. So this at least has that part. It's just that um, there's, there are too many co- potential competing interests, including uh, would-be commercial casinos and the Florida horse racing industry, that if you either shut them out or, or take away a big chunk of their potential earnings, uh, they're not going to stand for it.
1: All right. Well, next we go from Florida to another state where the tribes largely run the show, but a state where the tribes worked out a deal such that sports betting is coming very soon, Connecticut. The deadline for potential online sports betting companies to submit RFQs, requests for qualifications, responses to the Connecticut lottery was last Friday and 15 bids were submitted and will now be reviewed by the lottery as it seeks to choose its online partner. We know the Mashantucket Tribe is partnered with DraftKings, and the Mohegan Tribe is partnered with Camby, although we don't know which sports book that works with Camby will get that skin. And that leaves a third and final online skin for the lottery, which could be FanDuel, BetMGM, Barstool, William Hill, etc. But we don't know who submitted bids. The lottery will not reveal who the 15 companies are. Uh, John, you wrote about this for Sports Handle. Any guesses who might have the inside track? Uh, What are FanDuel's chances of operating in Connecticut? And when are you hearing sports betting is likely to launch?
2: Yeah, well, Wallach, speaking to Daniel again, uh, he noted last week that both Connecticut and Arizona seem to be interested in, uh, you know, allowing interesting parties to wet their beaks, as we say in this part of the country, uh, which can prevent lawsuits, actually, and Florida, not so much. You know, in Connecticut, this means the powerful lottery is appeased, especially with a bunch of retail sportsbooks coming across the state as well. Right. And the Connecticut timeline is rather aggressive. I, I would speculate that at least half of the 15 bidders already within one week know their goose is cooked because the most intriguing bidders already have gotten to a second round as of last Friday um you know within seven days after this uh, latest announcement so and everything in this proposal screams the bigger the better as far as the contenders go uh, and also having a northeast presence is said to be crucial uh the connecticut people say so uh as you mentioned Fanduel, william hill Bet mgm and penn national slash barstool uh they're in that echelon i'm not sure there are that many others and this there's no mom and pop coming here 24 <laughs> 7 in tennessee or whatever not happening in connecticut
1: Right, and, and and as far as uh, timing, I, I think you indicated in your article yeah. they're they're aiming for September.
2: Yeah, and actually, I, I always hear that, and I never believe it. And this is the <laughs> one time I can actually believe it's a possibility because they, um, I, I was I was impressed with the the detail on their on their timing and how they're going to do it. And it seems to me that the, they can make it work, and it's it's simplified. Obviously, you've got the two tribes. They they've been looking at this for a couple of years, and and they're kind of in the weeds are already working on this and then whatever the winner is going to be partly because they're so big and they're going to have so much experience previously, they're going to know how to do it. So this is the one time I would say, you know, that a governor is saying, Oh, we're going to look for football season. Yeah. And I think it could happen.
1: Yeah. I- I'm with you. It's usually correct to bet the over on launches, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, when they say the goal is September and they have a lot of the pieces in place already. Yeah. Sounds like that, that, uh, that that's a-, a goal that they are pretty likely to hit. Um, I'm, I'm just sitting back looking at this FanDuel situation and, and wondering how much does FanDuel care about Connecticut? How hard are they going to fight here? Obviously they care. They'd like to be there. Um, it's a population of about 3.6 million people. They're currently winning the national sports betting handle race, despite not being in Rhode Island or New Hampshire. I, d- I just don't know if they're going to pull out all the stops to make sure they're in Connecticut. Um, Maybe they are. But I don't know. For us industry nerds, uh, the, this is interesting to see who wins this bid, what online operators end up in the state, and, and whether DraftKings is going to extend its advantage over FanDuel in New England. The rest of the country, FanDuel is, is pretty well out in front, but New England DraftKings is, is certainly you know, in a better position at this point.
2: Right, And FanDuel does have a middle ground here if they like. They can make a sort of a moderate proposal and figure, you know, we may not win with this and we can live with that, as you know. Um, but what the heck, we'll see what happens. And then so because if we can get it at this tax rate, we're, we'll, we we want to do it. But the winning number probably is higher than we want to do. But we'll, we'll submit a bit anyway. I, I don't know why they wouldn't. Right.
1: Okay, our third and final story this week focuses on problem gambling and the news that in the month of February, calls to the Michigan Problem Gambling Helpline saw a major increase, spiking from between 50 and 150 calls in a typical month the last couple of years to 563 calls in February. (laughs) This is noteworthy because legal online gaming, uh, sports betting, casino and poker arrived in Michigan in late January. So the impact is already being felt in terms of people struggling with problem gambling and, importantly, calling to do something about it. It's a fairly straightforward news story. The arrival of online gaming brings with it a big uptick in calls to the problem gambling helpline. But there are all different ways to frame it. Uh, Is it a bad thing, proof of how dangerous it can be to put casinos on people's cell phones, Or is it a good thing, proof that the efforts to make people confront gambling addiction are working? Uh, John, thoughts?
2: Yeah, I cautiously do take it as a good thing. I know of nothing that says most or even many of these calls are from people who never gambled before until late January. They got hooked immediately, and now they're in big trouble and they're calling. I mean, more likely to me is that many individuals have been struggling for a long time while betting illegally and believe there was no place to turn. And now at the marketing onslaught comes mentions of gambling helplines, and maybe they see that and say, gee, I, I... I didn't know where to turn and now I have a place to turn, which would be a good thing. Um, you know, Michigan regulars need to dig deeper to make sure, but I believe this is what's happening here. And if I recall correctly, I think their funding uh, mechanism is actually pretty good too. So, uh, again, look into it, but, um, I just, I cannot imagine that, uh, that's been talked about in the UK for many years because they, they've got it. Um, the issue is that there aren't many people who, um, have a potential compulsive gambling problem and who never place a bet while it's illegal. And then as soon as it's legal, they not only bet, but they bet compulsively and you know dangerously. That doesn't actually happen. Um, same like prohibition, you know, in the U S almost a hundred years ago. Now you basically, right. uh, the people who are going to have that issue are going to find a way. And we all know it's incredibly easy to bet illegally uh, in the United States. So there were, I think they're already doing it. So I just, I just don't believe that people who, are in trouble now for uh compulsive gambling were just not they were able to just avoid it as long as it was not legal and now that it 's legal oh now they're you know katie bar the door i don't i don't think so
1: right yeah i mean it, it this is certainly this number is an indicator that the message is getting out there through legal online gambling yeah. that that people using these sites uh are able to find the the problem gambling help pages uh, th- that 's good um Certainly, when you use offshores, you're not being directed toward any help for problem gambling. Um, but look, there there are some people who lack the internal controls to responsibly participate in online gambling. It's reasonable to question whether it's good for them to have easy legal access to it. Um, but you know, maybe having that access helps them discover that it's a problem for them. If if we're talking about those people who wouldn't do it illegally but are doing it now. Um, which, as you said, is probably a small percentage, but I'm sure there are some people like that, you know, to to find out that they have a problem and quickly do something about it. There, There's a positive there. So I, I lean toward it all being mostly a good thing. The number of calls being way up is a good thing. It shows the system working, um, even though undoubtedly there is downside for some people to legal online gaming. I think, um, you know, the, the ease of access is a problem for some people um, and it isn't fully counterbalanced by the ease of self-exclusion um but you know ultimately this is one state one month small sample size it's really over the next few years across many states that we will get answers about how positive or negative legalized online gaming is for problem gambling but uh for now i'm with you that i I certainly feel uh leaning toward the the high volume of calls being a good thing overall
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a business term they call friction, and I think in this case, if you think back 30 years ago and you wanted to bet on NFL games, um, you kind of had to know a bookie, right? And a lot of people don't know bookies. Um, And so – they they would have to ask around. They may not even know anybody who knows a bookie or that they, know, that they they think they don't. And so ask that person. There's a little bit of trust there. You know, they might even meet the guy or meet an assistant or whatever. Uh, Again, okay, this is before online I'm talking about. And so they may have been interested in doing it, but they figured they had no way to do it. Um, but – talk about lack of friction, you log on and, uh, you know, Adam Silver's talked about this, the NBA commissioner a number time, uh, you just, uh, click, uh, you know, your state and, and sports betting or, or online casino, or whatever. And boom, the first sites you see are illegal. It couldn't be easier. You can deposit pretty easily. And, you know, I mean, frankly, we, uh, are not happy about it, but for the most part, you know, for a number of years, people can bet on those sites and they can cash out if they want, you know, so it's that easy. It's too, way too easy. And that's why I think people get in trouble. So uh, that's why I'm, I'm looking on the positive side with this. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the gamble on interview.
1: Horse Racing's Triple Crown starts this weekend with the Kentucky Derby, which is back to its usual May schedule after an out-of-order September running last year. And joining us now on the podcast for the first time since he helped us preview that strange Labor Day weekend derby eight months ago is TVG on-air host, analyst, and reporter Mike Joyce. Mike, good to see you again. Welcome back to Gamble On. Hey, thanks for having me. So when the Derby odds first started popping up at some places way back last November, essential quality was the favorite at 12 to one. Now he's all the way down to between two to one and two and a half to one after winning his last five races. Um, There was a run of six straight years from 2013 to 18 in which the favored horse won the Derby. Does it make sense to you that Essential Quality is such a big favorite? Is there value on betting him straight up to win at that price, or, or is this a year you look for a longer shot because that price on the favorite has come down so far?
0: So, look, value is what you make of it, right? And it, it, it's kind of all in the eyes of the beholder. So, if, if you know, if you look at Essential Quality as a horse that should be one to five, and he's eight to five, well, that's great value. He's eight times the price you think he should be. Um, he's he's done everything. Right. You know, and you mentioned those odds, you know, he was twelve to one back, you know, when the first Derby futures came out. So part of those odds baked in there is just you're betting on him to even make the race, right? And even though he is the champion two year old and he won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, um, there's only been two Breeders' Cup Juvenile winners to ever go on and, and win the Derby. Um, these animals are fragile as they are fickle. So the the bet to even get them there, I'm not a huge futures guy. Um, unless you're, you know, clairvoyant and you can get down like uh, Nick Casada did last, a couple of years ago on Justify the day before his debut and he got 150 to one on him and he bet 500 bucks mm-hmm. on him in Vegas and cleaned up like, yeah, if you can do that, that's a future worth it. But if I'm looking at 12 to one, six months out for a horse to even make the race, I'm going to tie my money up that long. I, it doesn't really make sense. I don't worry about what they were six months ago. Um, as far as essential qualities resume, he's done everything right. He's never lost a race. He was the champion two year old. Everything he's done has gone according to plan. Um, he runs the fastest races, the fastest speed figures. There's just really nothing there that you can poke a hole in his resume. The one argument against him I've heard was that his Bluegrass Stakes, which is his last prep before the Kentucky Derby, may have been a little tough um, because he got into a pretty decent dogfight with um, highly motivated in the stretch. And so people say, "Whoa, you know, is he going to be able to recover that in four weeks?" If this was any other race in the world, you wouldn't even think about that. You'd be like, "Oh, great, he's won you know this, you know, all these races in a row. Like you wouldn't worry about how hard that race was." And he's an expert hand. Um, I. Personally, I'm not going to bet him at two to one, and I I have nothing bad to say about him. But it is the Derby, and I think there's a handful of other good horses in there. So for me, the two to one is not worth it. If he was a really lukewarm favorite going in, like Harlan Holiday was, and he was six to one at post time, yeah, I think that's a favorite you can bet, right? Um, but if he's going to be two to one, I might try to swing swing against.
1: Okay, so typically for a two to one Derby favorite, it's got to be someone you feel is miles ahead of the field for you to for you to see that as good value.
0: Right. Well, I bet Nyquist, right? And I didn't, he was not a very good person. I think he was two to one or five to two or something like that. Um. So, but I just thought he was, it's not that I thought he was that much better than everybody else, but I just thought the win odds weren't, Um. I used him more in like sequential winners, like pick fours and pick sixes and things like that. And I just thought there were so many opinions against him. It was just, I, I just thought he was the best horse that day. Now he never won again after that, but he was, you know, the champion at two and he won the Breeders' Cup and then he went out to win the Derby. But, it just, it's really, it's what you make of it. Every race is its own individual bet. I, this year, I just, my, my whole thing with essential quality is, I think he's an excellent horse. I don't think he's great. I don't think he towers above the competition, like we've seen a, a Justify or a Pharaoh or a Chrome. When they came in, and it was like, you had a feeling they were going to do something special. I feel like he's a horse that's won everything in front of him, um, and he very well could win the Derby again. But I just don't feel like the separation between him and the next four or five horses in this crop is that much. Gotcha.
2: You know, Mike, I've been to quite a few uh, a Hamiltonian uh, uh, draws at the metal lens Racetrack, and of course that's harness racing. And you know, there's a, there's, you can feel attention in the room because you have a favorite, and there's the, the one slot, the two, the three, the four, and then all of a sudden there's a seven and the eight. And I remember one year the favorite got the ten, or at least he had been the favorite, and of course that's absolutely dreaded in harness racing. So thoroughbred racing is different. Um, there's 20 horses though. And you got the favorite at 14. And as you mentioned, the horse that just uh, challenged him pretty good at 17. I'm just curious for the Derby, uh, with 20 slots, uh, is there a number at which you start to say, wait a minute, I don't mind the guy being 11, 12, 13, but if he's 18, 19, 20, or is there sort of a magic number where you start to factor in the, 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 the starting slot to whether you want to bet on the horse or not?
0: Well, we've had a lot of these trends that fall by the wayside. Like, oh, a horse can't win from the auxiliary gate, and then a horse wins from, you know, all the way out there. And by the way, this year, they don't have an auxiliary gate. They built a 20-horse gate for the yeah. Derby, so it's all one uh, piece of equipment. Um, the only horse you can really talk about in this year's Derby that may have gotten a bad draw is Known agenda, because he draws the rail. Nobody really wants the rail in a 20-horse field. Yeah. But I will say this. he does. Uh, he has taken dirt in his face. He's gotten some kickback before, and I think he'll handle it just fine. The question with him is when there's 20 horses in there and then they compact, and they all try to move over and get closer to the rail to have a shorter trip around. How far back does that horse in the one post get shuffled, right? So if you're a little too far inside and you can't really hold that position, you could be finding yourself more legs out of it than you can make up. So I think Nona Agenda is really the only horse I've heard anyone say um, was undone by the draw. I'm not too worried about anybody else, especially if we're drawn outside. They have plenty of time to pick their trip. Um, and I will say the one thing that has been great about the point system versus just the old graded stakes system is that it's taken a lot of the cheap speed out. Because before, you were, won a, you know, a race at three quarters of a mile in your two-year-old campaign, and you had the graded stakes, and it was like, yeah, you could get into the Derby. Uh, it doesn't work like that anymore. And what that does is it takes these horses that never had a chance of going that mile and a quarter distance, but we're just going to be speed balls out there and just make the race go super fast. You've lost about five or six of those horses, which makes the race more honest, which really does help. I mean, it, it might make it more of a track, traffic jam in the sense that you have a lot of horses fighting for the same trip. But what it prevents is the race falling apart, and then these, you know, just absolute kamikaze runs down the front stretch for the first time, where really things can really get drawn out, and then you've got a horse that's twenty lengths out of it that loses all the chance. So it's, I, I think that helps it be more honest. I think the real question this year is who's <laughs> going to find themselves on the front end and. Is there anybody that, that that's going to just go out there and grab it and try to go with it? Because the lead has been a great place for the Derby the last you know five six years.
2: And how about the, just for the amateur handicapper? Do you do you have a sense that they over uh, compensate in trying to figure out what to do with the uh, where the the horse is slotted out of the twenty, or do they not even ever notice it and maybe they don't take it into consideration as well as they should?
0: Um, I think there's things that that, um, you know, casual horse players who maybe go once a year for Derby look at, right, everyone's going to bet Bob bet right? Everyone's going to bet, you know, a big name that they can see. Um, and, you know, I don't think post-position comes into it too much. I think other than 1 and 20, I don't think that the the money from the, the $2 better is really going to have anything, any impact, you know, as far as from post-position, but you know, I do think that we work in this industry and we kind of think, oh, the $2 better, the, look, my my sister-in-law picked Country House the other day because she reads, or last year, two years ago, because she reads Country House magazine, right? She was the only one that's right. So whatever your angle is, just go with it because it it, it can't be worse than what I'm doing. So. <laughs> that's
1: great. Um, so, so pulling back a bit, sort of a wide angle, uh, not just looking at the derby how would you assess the state of horse racing compared to other sports coming out of the 2020 pandemic year? And, you know, not that the pandemic is over, uh, but the worst seems behind us. Sports events are happening on schedule again. So did horse racing escape relatively unscathed or was 2020 a disaster that'll take some time for the sport to recover from? What's your perspective on on the state of things?
0: So it's actually the opposite. of I'm worried about the the sport recovering from it. I'm, I'm actually worried about the sport Um, making use of all the goodwill we got over the last year because the pandemic was in a lot of respects good for horse racing because while every other, every other sport shut down, horse racing didn't because it it didn't change the number of people that have to go to the track every day to care for the horses than it does to race the horses. You're still going to have, you know, trainers, grooms, assistant trainers, gallop boys, jockeys, all of it, you know, uh, you know, the gate crew at the track security at the track, whether they're racing or not. So because of that, there were no fans, but, you know, you can watch it on TV. You can wager online. The financial arm, the mechanism that keeps racing going, which is the wagering, could still go. You could have racing conducted. People could bet. And because of that, we actually enjoyed a great boon. I mean, it was, it was, it was was you know, months of horse racing being the only thing on a number of sports networks. TVG partnered up with NBC Sports. We were on a lot of NBC mm-hmm. um, shows covering horse racing, whether there was nothing else on. And there was a bump in a lot of things, right? There's a bump in handle. There's a bump in interest, especially sports bettors, because they didn't have any action. They started gravitating toward, toward horse racing. So horse racing picked up some new customers. My worry is that we, we don't make the most of that, right? My worry is as an industry that's been on the decline for you know, a couple of decades now, and a concerning one at that, um, that we just got this great bump, right? This great bit of luck that helped our industry in a difficult time. And we have these new eyeballs and these new customers, these clientele. I'm worried that we don't do enough to keep them. That's, that's kind of where I think the the state of racing is, but look, Santa Anita just started having fans again for the first time, past couple of weeks, things in California have really opened up a bit. Um, You know, the case rates are very low. Transmission rates are low. Test positivity is is 1% or lower. And um, there seemed to be, you know, there weren't a lot of people at the racetrack on an average day before the pandemic, but having been away for a year, people really did come back out and support it. So that was positive, right? I mean, my, you know, my whole thing is, if I, you know, if I could make t-shirts, I'd say, you know, support your local racetrack, right? Like, I, I think that going to the race is the best thing in the world you could do. So my concern is the pandemic was actually, in a lot of ways, good for horse racing. I just hope we don't spoil the goodwill and the momentum that we receive.
1: So is that something you're watching the Derby numbers really closely, that this will be a, a significant sign in terms of, is the tv rating particularly strong is the betting handle particularly strong that the the derby will go a long way toward indicating to you how well horse racing has retained some of that new interest.
0: Yes and no. I mean the derby here's the here's the thing. If you look at derby and breeders cup every year, you'd say what 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 problem? Horse racing is great, right? I mean like the derby is the derby, breeders cup is breeders cup. These are great right. events, right? It's like judging football by the success of the Super Bowl. Right. The Super Bowl's always going to do well, right? The worry you have is when you're watching a Jacksonville game in mid-November and there's nobody in the stands, right? That's when you're like, okay, where where is the state of the game at this point? So um, I don't know that the Derby is the best barometer. I mean, it's the barometer for our biggest days. I do think there there will be a good uh, measure of interest this year. I think last year, you know, as a unicorn, you can't compare it to anything because it was, you know, in September, it was a pandemic year. Nobody really knew what was going on. Um, so you can't really use that. I think what you're going to compare – 2021 to is 2019 and 2018 in the years prior to the pandemic. And so we'll see how it matches up. I, look, there's not going to be as many people on site because there can't be. Um, so that, that will affect it. We'll see what happens with television ratings and, and money bets.
2: Yeah, you know, Mike, a possible game changer that gets talked about in horse racing, but seemingly only in New Jersey, my state, <laughs> is fixed odds wagering. You know, Monmouth Park is really making a push for this idea. And, and clearly, on the one hand, in Australia, it's been extraordinarily successful. Uh, there's a lot of younger bettors who uh, they can't believe that they bet a horse at six to one. And then just as the race starts, he's down to three to one. And, and they think it's, uh, they almost feel like it's kind of corrupt, uh, even though it isn't. And so, uh, that's been a big help there. On the other hand, Australia is an outlier in terms of the gambling culture is higher than any other country in the world. So um, do you think the Australian example is any good? And also in general, do you see any momentum outside of New Jersey for fixed odd wagering coming in the next uh, few years?
0: I think fixed odd wagering has to happen. um, And I think it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's just, it's really tricky and we love to complain about um, parimutuel, you know, odds changes, but the pari business model is one of the best things that's ever happened to horse racing because you lock in your revenue stream. Your purses are taken care of. Your profits are taken care of. You look at every other country and what they run for. They're running for bags of chips and you know sides of rope. And I mean, the purse structure daily in any other country other than the U.S. is terrible. And you can't say that that's because you know, U.S. racing isn't hurting. And we, we, we've found a decline. But the pari model is one of the best gambling business models ever created in the history of mankind so when you get to that fixed odds how do you maintain that guaranteed revenue stream for all the stakeholders the horsemen the racetracks and that's the tricky part right we're getting into real higher math here um so we love the bookmaking culture as a gambler because we get to pick our odds right we go to the bookie ring and we go around and we try to pick what it is but a bookie lives or dies by the results right a bookie can get wiped out right a book can get a bookie can make a, a million dollars It just It just depends on on the result, whereas the parimutuel model, you know, I think it's 19 percent on average of all bets. So let's just say 20 percent, 20 percent of every dollar bet goes to the track and the horseman and the operation and 80 percent goes back to the winning bettors. Right. You're never going to find a better gambling business model to guarantee a revenue stream like that. Okay, other than a casino. But even a casino, theoretically, could get wiped out. They just have the math on their side. Parimutuel wagering, this is horses running in circles, multiple betting interests. It's the only way to do it. When you have a bookmaking culture with horse racing, it's really tough to make a living. And there's 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 a reason there's only a handful of bookies that make money and they become these huge conglomerates overseas. It's it's a real tough racket. So um, we love fixed odds. We love the thought of it. And I think it has to come because I think the market demands it. It's going to be really tricky, though, to bake that business model in like parimutuel wagering where you have guaranteed income to horsemen and racetrack because without that, it doesn't work because you don't have, you don't have a pen to plan and you don't have ponies to bet on.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of feeling deja vu all over again with the uh, cannibalization claim, which is uh, uh, a decade ago, the Atlantic City Casino operators unanimously opposed online casino. They said it was going to ruin them and all that. And then they actually did a little market research and found out that, that, oh, that's actually not going to happen. The people that are gonna, uh, that already do bet illegally online casino. They don't go to brick and mortar casinos anyway. So if you legalize it, you regulate it, it's good for the consumer and you get new customers because you have a new customer base. And you can say to them, hey, you've played enough, you can get a free weekend in Atlantic City. Why don't you come down next month? And then they show up and then maybe you turn them into a fan. So, uh, you know, by 2013, actually, New Jersey already had online casino. Now, most states in the country still don't have it, but uh, it's worked great for the brick and mortar casinos as a supplement. And so I, I just wonder sometimes if the uh, traditional horse racing industry is, is kind of locked in the way the casinos were. And I just wonder if there is going to be that kind of market research or open-mindedness even just to say, let's see if it looks like it would cannibalize. Maybe it would, but at least let's look at the issue. And it just seems like a lot of the big operators are just say, we're never going to do it. We absolutely refuse. And they, they don't even want to listen to the, the concept.
0: Well, I, but I don't think they're wrong in doing that. And I'll tell you why. So the company mm-hmm. that I, for. So I work for TVG, which is part of the family group, which is part of the Flutter group, which is a, yeah. one of the largest retail wagering um, companies in the entire world, right? And TVG is just a tiny little sliver of a percent of it. So we have business insights. We have the models, and we know how it works everywhere in the world. So you, you keep using Australia as an example. Australia was a great example for sports betting, except for the fact that horse racing is still a water cooler sport there, just like it is in England, where you can go to work and talk about – horse racing the way you and i would go to work and talk about baseball so there's a little bit different what they did find in australia was that with the advent of sports betting interest in wagering on horse racing grew because Mm -hmm. um sports betters are like any other gambler but more so they're price sensitive right a roulette player isn't price sensitive so much a blackjack player isn't price sensitive so much the the odds never really change in those games but a sports better will shop and shop and shop for a number right they always say like you know uh, a losing better bet's a team, a winning better bet's a number, right? They'll shop for that number. When you start comparing the numbers you can get in horse racing, you become price sensitive to the fact that, wow, in 90 seconds, I get a 10 times return on my money versus waiting three and a half hours to get, you know, plus 165 on a football game. So that was the natural growth there. And that was that's where I think there, there's not going to be cannibalization. Hopefully in the U.S., we get that same kind of natural organic growth. And that's going to be over a five and 10 year span. But as far as the fixed odds, like I, I understand your perspective, where that, that's what the that's what the better wants. But bookmakers and bookmakers don't have to support a racetrack, right? Bookmakers don't have to pay for the brick and mortar of operating a racetrack. Uh, bookmakers don't have to supplement purses. Bookmakers don't have those expenses. The only expense a bookmaker has is his bookmaking operation, right? And and I'll go back to it again. You look at what they run. Look at look at Great Britain. Look at Ireland. Look at anywhere else. Look, what, look at the purses they run for. And don't even compare them to our Racinos where we have slot revenue. Just look at purely yeah. mutual states, Texas, um, you know, uh, California, right? Look, look at what they run for in Texas. The purses they're running for at Lone Star Park in Sam Houston are higher than the purses they're running for at almost any racetrack in England. Okay? And these are second, third, mm-hmm. fourth tier racetracks. And the reason is because of that mutual business model. And that mutual business model supports an operation that costs millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. To operate. And my company, you know, TVG, we get into these debates all the time with racetracks because we have to fine-tune, you know, how do we figure out the right takeout? Because we have a television network that costs millions and millions and millions of dollars in order to operate. We have all this money that we put into technology. You know, we were the first company to develop an app. We were the first company to have an online website. We were the first company that could wager over the phone. We were the first company to put horse racing on television every day. And all those things cost money. But What's the right mix? How much money do you have to get back to the racetrack, to get back to the Portsmouth? Then each state has their own municipalities and they have their own thing. So the fixed odds thing is great. They have to figure out how to work that into a paramutual model, which I'll think they'll do. But it's really tough and it's really tough. And if we if I'll tell you this right now, if we just went to a straight bookmaking culture in the U.S., racing would go out of business and it would happen faster than you can see it. Because if you yeah, just I, let bookmakers control the action, there's not a single racetrack. You have to also re- remember every brick and mortar racetrack in this country is sitting on real estate. That would almost definitely be more valuable as anything other than a racetrack because it's yeah. so much land. So they, you know, they, to keep Belmont park up, what do they do? They had to build the entire arena for the Islanders to play hockey. in, Right? Like that's how they made use of that space. All of those things, every racetrack faces that same threat. So I like, I, I've grown up with the Paramutual model and I understand it really well. And I understand how that's what made American racing the best racing in the world. So when you get out of that and you start going to fixed odds, that's fine, but it has to be baked into Paramutual. You can't do it as a bookmaker.
2: Yeah, I kind of got a little insight into this, uh, uh, this challenge with, from a Metal Lens racetrack operator or Jeff Corral, you know, obviously he's got the arguably the most important harness racing track in the world, and then he goes to sports betting, and with FanDuel, he's got the biggest sports book in the U.S., if not the world, And but he still, in the first year or two especially, you know, would say to me, I, I can't get over this, like, I don't know if I'm going to win any money this this month, you know, and, you know, I won money in November, and I lost money in December, and I won a lot of money in January, and then the Super Bowl was great, so I, I cleaned it up, and it it is really difficult for him, and he's a lifelong horseman, to grasp that concept of, you know, this is not paramutual. You're not guaranteed a piece of the action. Of course, mm-hmm. you're not, you know, the overhead either, as you say. So there's a, it's a mixed bag to do it the, the way it's been done, but I can definitely see it, it's being a challenge. So I, I don't, I don't know if we're going to see it in five or 10 years, even. It, it's going to be a hard nut to crack, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And really, I think it just comes down to how do you lock in a price and have that money distributed through a paramutual pool? where you still have a reasonable expectation of what the takeout's going to be. And you know, there's there's models to do that. I just don't know that we've gotten to that model that can make it work. And it's going to be a different model for a pool that's averaging 700,000 than a pool that's averaging 70,000, right? So, it's going to be difficult to figure out how to do it. And I don't, you know, I don't I don't have the answer that way above my pay grade i just wear makeup and talk about you know horses running in circles for money but that that is yeah that is the golden goose is try to figure out how that fixed up can can work within the current payer mutual model
1: well you're pretty darn good at talking about horses running in circles and we appreciate you uh coming on the podcast and, and doing that with us once again uh thanks for your time mike and uh in, enjoy the derby this weekend
0: thanks and i just want to let everyone know uh if you're betting the derby if you don't have a tvg account um They're running a promo where it's a $200 risk-free bet, which is a joke. Our marketing guys are just a bunch of drunken hillbillies up on the (laughs) 8th floor. They're just pounding moonshine and bourbon. And every promotion they come up with is just throwing dollar bills at our customers. So it's a $200 risk-free bet. If you go to the TVG app or go to TVG.com, the promos will drop down. But when you sign up, use the promo code BESTBET. Um, If you don't know what the promo code is, just make sure you go through the promos before you sign up. They'll tell you what's there. And then there's a, a whole bunch of other things going. But, yeah, sign up load up your account i mean Derby's just a couple of days away
1: great stuff thanks again mike all
0: right thanks a lot guys
1: two men, two men.
0: ten
2: thousand dollars will they run it up or blow it all it's time to check in on the gamble on bankroll
1: Only one bankroll bet to update this week, as most of last week's new bets were futures bets. But the one result that came in was an exceptionally good one for the bankroll. John gets to take a victory lap for his golf bets. He took the duo of Smith and Leachman in the Zurich Classic of New Orleans to finish top 10 at plus 110 and to win outright at plus 1200. And they did indeed win the tournament. So that means the $80 bet on the top 10 pulls in an $88 profit. And the $20 outright bet profits $240. Uh, In total, those bets won us a much-needed $328. And we're now in the red by triple digits instead of quadruple digits, uh, down $887. We also have $2,058 on hold in Futures bets. So that leaves us with $7,055 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John, Uh, pat yourself on the back verbally for those golf bets. And then let us know what your first wager of the week is.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll say that I I think the absolute, Sign of utter mediocrity in this uh, endeavor would be being down 500 after all this time. So we're still not even mediocre, but um, (laughs) at least we can see it from our backyard now. Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, it was ego versus ego in the playoff, Eric. Uh, You know, one of my four picks in the private golf pool where I'm leading. Another little pat on the back for myself. (laughs) So I had the Australian winners and the South African runners up, uh, both teams in the playoffs, which is kind of amazing out of my four picks. So I was going to win a little money either from the pool uh, or on my Smith-Leishman wager on DraftKings. So the South Africans, I would have padded my lead in the pool, which is tempting, but we badly needed to win on the podcast, and that's instant gratification to the old ego. And maybe I win that pool in August anyway. So, you know, watching Louis Louis Oostes and dump his T-shirt in the drink on the first playoff Mm -hmm. hole, Let's just say I was okay with that. So I guess, obviously, I have to go back to the golf well here. Uh, another mediocre event this week. It's called the Valspar, but clearly I have to I have to go for it. So uh, I perused the afternoon pairings, and I saw four players I liked a lot. So then I figured, let's see if I'd like any of their odds, though. That's the important thing. It's a difficult course in Florida with wins. So, yeah, I don't have any Americans on this dance card. <laughs> but I love the odds on all four players, it turns out. So I'm going to divvy up all my wagers here. Uh, that's a new one on mm. Gamble On. Uh, Charles Swartzel is the other South African and say that three times fast. Um, <laughs> I got him a 10 to win at plus 11,000 and 40 wow. for a mere top. That's <laughs> I'm not making that up. And 40 for a mere top 40 at plus 163. Uh, This is the next master's champ that everybody seems to have forgotten about. Uh, He won this tournament five years ago and had a long bout of injuries after a pro-am player whacked him uh, and hard on a wrist on a, on a, on a golf shot. Brutal. Mm -hmm. Um, And Swartzel has stealthily finally gotten healthy and back into form. And he he just sort of flashed before. And that's why uh, I snuck him and Louie past the goalie. I mean, the rest of my golf pool last weekend. And speaking of Louie, uh, him at 100 at plus 120 to go top 20. Uh, he's an ex British Open champ and one of a handful of players to ever place second in all four majors, but he's never closed a deal in any U.S. event in all these years, although he's won plenty of times overseas. Uh, Brandon Grace is yet another South African who has been quietly climbing into the top 50 or 60 or so of the FedEx Cup point standings. Uh, like Charles, he's 40 at plus 163 for me to finish in the top 40. Well, I had to double check the. DraftKings, I can't believe I'm, I'm getting plus 163 on both of those guys at at, uh, at, at top 40 only. Uh, yeah. And we close with English Justin Rose, uh, who after vying with Ricky Fowler for being the least relevant golfer to seemingly appear in every freaking commercial every weekend, uh, unlike Ricky, he's now back in fine form. So how about this 10 to win the trophy at a generous plus 3,500? diversifier diversify
1: yes indeed that is a very diversified portfolio <laughs> we have there so does that mean you're not coming back with a with a second round of I bets am not. Uh, okay all right so I, that means i get uh, some back-to-back bets in yes, here um so we we have a couple of nfl draft bets that we've made already uh, you have a small bet uh fifty dollars on Pene sewell to go in the top five it's looking iffy at number five to the bengals is our chance there I'm, I'm hearing all different possibilities for them and he's one of them uh i also have that ten dollar long shot bet at 25 to one on caleb farley to be the eagles first pick which he apparently has covid and won't be at the draft not sure if that hurts his chances it certainly doesn't help uh anyway uh i will make uh, one more draft bet here uh one more draft bet from this podcaster who doesn't watch any college football running back Najee Harris under 28 and a half, uh, meaning he'll go in the first 28 picks. Almost every mock draft has him going to the Steelers at 24 if he's still there. Some have him going in the late teens to the Cardinals or Dolphins or possibly to the Jets with their second pick of the first round at 23. Anything can happen. Nobody really knows anything, Uh, but I can't find any mocks anymore where Harris is lower than 24. The question is, How do I bet it strategically? Uh, Points bet has a line of 28.5 with minus 143 juice on the under. Other books have the line at 26.5, 25.5, and even 24.5 with FanDuel at plus 100, even money on under 24.5. If I totally trust that he won't slip past the Steelers, then that's the bet under 24.5. But if I go with 28.5, I have some extra wiggle room in case of trades. I'll put it to you, John. I know you thought you were done with uh, done with betting for this week, but I'm, I'll let you make the call. Do we risk 143 to win 100 under 28 and a half, or do we risk less money, 100 dollars to win 100 under 24 and a half? What's your call?
2: And I'd like the 28 and a half exactly for the trade possibility because uh, it's not just like well, there's three extra teams, but maybe they don't. None of them need a running back. The point is, uh, there's so many picks traded late in the first round, in particular, that right. uh, it somebody is going to take them there. So I, I do uh, think it's worth uh, paying the extra juice just because it seems like a lock.
1: Okay. All right. So we'll go with that. Uh, and then for my other bet this week, uh, we updated our NBA futures bets last week. Uh, and I said, we expect to be break even on player awards bets. Uh, we're going to lose a hundred on LeBron MVP and win a hundred on Julius Randall most improved. Well, I found a way to get into the black on awards bets. I can't believe this number Nikola Jokic is only minus 357 for MVP at BetMGM. He's minus 450 and minus 500 at other books. And even those are good prices. I can't believe he isn't at least minus 800 at this point. I don't see any scenario in which he doesn't win the award other than him getting injured, knock wood. Uh, And even if he gets injured now, He almost certainly wins the award anyway, because he's played in 62 of 62 games. His competition is Joel Embiid, whose max possible games played is now 53 and Steph Curry, whose max possible is 64 and the warriors are only 500. So forget Curry and the nuggets now have the same record as the Sixers 41 and 21. They can't finish outside the top four in the West. I think this race is over. Um, this is a big bet I'm about to make compared to what we usually risk, uh, about three and a half times what we might consider a standard okay. unit. But uh, but I'm fine with that risk. Let's bet three hundred fifty seven dollars to win one hundred on Jokic winning the MVP award. And I know you're you're wincing a little at that amount, but that, at least, John, I, I didn't do what I thought about doing, which was seven hundred fourteen dollars to win two hundred.
2: Oh, oh, man. No, 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 no. I believe that would be called chasing Eric when you're down.
1: I get. I suppose so, but it's also. uh, Yeah, I I don't want to use the word "sure thing." I feel like that jinxes it. So let's just say. Let's just say I feel confident, (laughs) and that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Mike Joyce. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to US Bets dot com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out.
2: Well, Eric, I, rushing in where some still fear to tread, I moseyed out to the Met City Field on Wednesday night to admire the massive Empire City Casino by MGM Resorts, Manhattan's closest casino sign in the out, outfield outdoor food area. But also, frankly, Jacob DeGrom was pitching and I wanted to feel a sense of normalcy. And with 20 percent capacity seating, though, and the ground pitching, uh, price in the secondary market were, yeah, pricey. <laughs> um, but my college buddy won me over with a brilliant sales tactic that I pass along as wisdom to each of you. He says, how much did you spend on baseball tickets last year? Zero. Okay, he got me there. Uh, plus, this is the guy <laughs> who got me the extra ticket for game seven of the 86 World Series Chase mm. Stadium, and, you know, which, while I'm here 35 years ago, is the last time the Mets were champions. And. I think it's true that the only crime with no statute of limitations is murder. Uh, there also, I think, is no statute of limitations on favors owed to the guy who got you a seat to a championship <laughs> victory. So, uh, but the same argument he made though should work on anybody's friend, spouse, significant other, right? You know, sure, the ball game, concert tickets, vacation tab, fancy hotel room, whatever you are, you know, desiring it seems a bit expensive. But knock off the amount you saved last year on those activities, which might have been zero, and it seems suddenly hard to resist. So, so now your summer plans are looking a lot rosier out there, aren't they? And with that, until next time, gamble on.